Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Joe Frank died a year ago. He was 79, and he was a radio giant. He conducted interviews, read stories, wrote dramas, and none of it was like anything done before because it was so raw and, frankly, nuts. To many of us, it was shocking and sad. He wasn't a huge star. But his light has been reflected in the great work of people you do know. Mark Oppenheimer is the host of the podcast on Orthodox. He spent the past year interviewing Joe and those he influenced for an article in Slate called Joe Frank Signs Off. Joe Frank had one of the most difficult lives of anyone who didn't live through a genocide whom I've ever interviewed. He was sickly his entire life. He was born with club feet. He had testicular cancer at a young age. He had a different cancer about every other decade. His mother hated him. His father died young. He was just in enormous physical and psychological pain. He was a child of privilege. He grew up quite wealthy on Central Park in New York City, the child of parents who had fled the Nazis. He hadn't trained to be a radio person. He had gone to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and wanted to be a fiction writer. And then for a while, he was a high school teacher at the Dalton School in New York City. Then he promoted concerts up in Western Massachusetts, and he would drive up and down I-91 and listen to the radio on his way to the shows he was promoting in the Springfield area. And that's when he began to think that maybe he had a future in radio because he found that those voices keeping him company late at night on the highway in the cold were so soothing to him and gave him a kind of community and company that held his melancholy at bay. And so he began to volunteer at WBAI, which was radio-wise really the place to be, was doing very interesting work. Uh, Hit or miss work. Some of it was terrible. (laughs) But he went there and just studied and learned to cut audio, learned to edit, and listened. So what did you experience the first time you heard him? I have to say that if I had encountered Joe Frank on my own without knowing how much he had meant to some of these really great cultural figures— like Ira Glass or Alexander Payne, the film director, I probably would have listened for a few minutes and then turned the radio off. He's difficult. He doesn't come to you. He tells stories that don't make sense unless you listen for the whole 25 or 45 minutes. (laughs) And even then. And even then. (laughs) He often operates at the boundaries of fiction and nonfiction, so that if your mind wanders, you're not sure if you're listening to a story about his life that really happened, or if he's reading the evening news. If you can't pay really close attention, then he's not for you. He is for late-night listening in the car by yourself. And it's not an accident that his career really flourished once he left the New York-Washington axis and moved to Los Angeles, because that is a city where a lot of lonely people are in cars by themselves late at night. This is Joe Frank. I'm here at the Bellflower Hotel in the rooms of Bertram Fields, a preeminent performer in the art of mime. Have you ever thought about what else you might have done in your life uh, had you chosen another career path? I suppose if I had not become a mime, I think I would have considered going into a registered nursing. I was always interested in uh, uh, bodily fluids, and I You've just been rejected from your 12th audition of the week. You have a couple drinks at the bar. You get in the car to head back to the valley to your little efficiency apartment. And it's 11 p.m. and you turn on the radio and you're looking for some company, for some solace. And you give it your undivided attention. That's where Joe Frank hits people. sense of, um, of what you're going to be doing at Carnegie Hall. Could you give us um, 
perhaps a taste of, um, of the performance this Thursday evening? Well, we're doing a broad range of material at the concert, but perhaps you might like this one. Uh, this is uh, from the De Croo days. It's always been a big favorite. It's called Nothing Happened. The Joe Frank that I enjoy is is really the absurdist Joe Frank. And he did a piece called Prayer, mm-hmm. which aired in different versions in 1994 and 1995. Frank was a very committed atheist. Uh, he had very conflicted feelings about his own Jewish background. But he was, like many atheists, obsessed with religion. And one of the pieces in the hour-long episode called Prayer is – a performance by a late poet and performance artist from Baltimore named David Franks, uh, with an S on the end. And Franks had this stock character who was this evangelist, this faith healer who would Mm -hmm. heal people over the radio. And what Joe Frank did was he had David Franks come on as this preacher and take phone calls from stroke victims, from people with disabilities or palsies, and he would lead them in these incantations. He would say, now repeat after me. And then he would have them pray to, you know, the great otter god, and he would <laughs> he would, he would say, you know, okay, repeat after me. Let me be like a mouse inside a mouse trap. Inside a mouse trap. Inside a mouse trap. Feed me. Feed me. Bread. Bread. Wine. One. Hamsters. Hamsters. Rats. Rats. Bullfrogs. Bulldogs. African Eurasian tiger pussycats. Tiger for Asian and tiger pussycats. And love me, O Father. This was incredibly cruel, and I do believe that the callers were real people. He also did a pledge drive once where he said, if we don't meet our targets, we're going to shoot this dog here in the studio. <laughs> um, they, they didn't meet the target, and they pretended to shoot the dog. Frank could be very cruel, but what you have to remember is that he had suffered at least as much as the people who were calling in. I mean, this was his own pain that he was working through. This is someone who, you know, had nightmares because of the enema he'd been given in the hospital (laughs) when he had an undescended testicle operated on, and then he had testicular cancer, and, you know, his cousin donated a kidney to him and then billed him for the kidney. This was someone who'd been through enormous pain in his life. You can find Mark Oppenheimer's story, Joe Frank Signs Off, in Slate. When Frank died, I assumed I'd find someone he influenced just down the hall. Yep, Radio Lab's Chad Abermont. I played him some tape. When you hug people goodbye after a social event, perhaps a dinner party or a gallery opening, there is always that moment when they squeeze you more forcefully than before. A polite way of letting you know they are about to withdraw. Usually, the one who disengages first is the one who cares less. When this used to happen to me, I felt rejected and humiliated. I'd come home with a lonely, sick feeling. And that's why, in order to assume the power position and gain the psychological advantage, I now hug people very briefly, perhaps one or two seconds before freeing myself. Sometimes, if I detect any resistance, I'll push the person away. In one instance, I caused a woman to fall backwards over a chair, (laughs) injuring her back, which led to her hospitalization. But I had no choice. It was a matter of (laughs) self-preservation. 
<laughs> oh man, that is classic, Joe Frank. It's really good writing, you know. He writes these like scenarios. They're like demented talk of the towns in a way. Like they're just these little fragments of dark experience, which are beautifully realized, very vivid, kind of funny, but kind of also troubling. Like there, there are always many things at once. You know. <laughs> How do you think he influenced you? Because you were always a great producer, always technically adept. You had tons of musical composition training. You understood the rhythmic possibilities of radio. So what did he do that you don't think you could have done without him? It's a lot of different things. This was way at the beginning for me when Radio Lab was just a three-hour thing on the AM station. We're These, going back how far? We're going back to the Stone Age. So say like January, February 2002, mm -hmm. somewhere around there, really at the beginning. And Everybody here who knows the beginning of Radio Lab knows that I didn't deserve that show. It was just too soon, and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a style. I had the like unfortunate thing that we all had back in 2002 is that I just wanted to be Ira Glass. Everybody wanted to be Ira Glass, right? And I was still trying to figure out, like, okay, so who am I? What do I want my stuff to sound like? And so I would, every Sunday night, I'd have to put up three hours, and it was an anthology show at that point, and it was literally take the best documentaries from the BBC, the CBC in Canada, the ABC in Australia, Radio Netherlands, all the stuff, and package them into three continuous hours. And I would sort of narrate in and out of different segments. And so from 8 to 11, I'd be playing my show. And I was board hopping at the time, mm -hmm. which means I wasn't just making the thing, but I had to sit at the board, hit play on the CD, and then between hour one and hour two and hour two and hour three, I'd have to say the weather. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I was doing the whole thing. And after me, Joe Frank would come on. And he was part of my shift. And every time I'd just be like, what the F is this stuff? I, I would just be sitting there listening to him and just like amazed and like mentally taking notes, being like, oh, this guy has a feel and a there's a surreality and a disorientingness to his stuff that I was just really fascinated by. And I was like, oh, I want to I wanna do that. There's something transgressive in everything that he does. And um, I like to think we try to sort of embody that spirit a little bit and that we're making things that aren't always safe. They kind of want to mess you up a tiny bit or they want to trouble you in all the right ways. When I was a little radio baby, I feel like that was something like, oh, you know, I can mm -hmm. do. I didn't think I could do that. Can we play that one that we said that we can't play? There was a time when I danced on a street corner, dressed as a chicken. My job was to draw attention to a furniture store down the block. One evening, when my shift was over, still wearing my chicken outfit, I walked into a bar across the street. I ordered a Bombay martini, straight up, olives on the side. A prostitute sat down next to me. She was young, willowy, had a faraway look in her eyes. Her name was Meredith. We talked about our careers, the importance of networking, setting goals, focus. <laughs> then I excused myself, walked into the men's room, entered a stall, and sat down on the toilet, and had a bowel movement that broke in two, and half of it was still hanging out of me, so I had to wipe myself 50 times, repeatedly checking to see if there was more left on the toilet paper. <laughs> 
and written on the wall were the words, know that someone is suffering anonymously and unknown, and that by the time you read this, I'll be dead. Oh my god. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Wow. There's nothing wrong with playing that clip. Actually, he's not using any bad words. It's true. I mean, there's no FCC violations there. (laughs) And it's simply gross. (laughs) And yet, you tell me that there's this person on the planet to whom (laughs) that hasn't happened. (laughs) Yeah, you hear something like that and it gives you permission. You know, you didn't think you could write something nutty and gross the way that that he did in the clip we just heard being mischievous and transgressive and a little bit dark and the way he talks too that kind of like super hushed high hiss there's like a high hiss on his voice there's something just about the sound of his voice and and there's a kind of like deep trance inducing quality to listening to a joe frank story all of those elements i thought could i take that and put it into journalism the telling of true stories, the reporting of true stories. Could that stuff sound like Joe Frank? I remember thinking very consciously, I'd love to be able to be Joe Frank in a different mode. Well, there is a certain similar resonance, and I think you both make really good use of the proximity effect. Yes. I mean, you, you're I'm doing both, it right now. Yeah, you're both really leaning into the mic. You know, there is a sort of... I'm really in your head. Mm -hmm. That's what he does. Yeah. Joe Frank always had the quality of like he's coming from inside your head out and then back in again. (laughs) He has that kind of quality where it it sounds like he's somehow like the voice in your head but broadcast back into your head. (laughs) Um, There's something about that quality which I, I, that's what I want from the radio. It's what I want from podcasts. I want someone to be speaking from inside me in a way. Have you ever talked about Joe Frank to- uh, Oh, yeah. I give this talk 30, 40 times a year where I have, like, an extended Joe Frank excerpt. I have an image of Joe Frank that I show. Uh, Yeah, I talk about Joe Frank all the time. (laughs) And there were many times when people wanted to adapt his stuff, but it just didn't seem to travel off the radio. One time, someone stole from him. Really? It was the writer of the Martin Scorsese film, this absurdist kind of Virgil-like exploration of New York called After Hours. And he uh, got paid, he says, quite handsomely after the lawsuit. Wow, I did not know that. That's crazy. It's funny. Now that we're talking about it, I'm surprised there was never a Joe Frank moment, a moment where he kind of came back. So I don't know. I wonder how some of the clips you're playing, I wonder how it sounds to somebody who's in their 20s and just getting into podcasting. It still sounds good to me. I could <laughs> me just be because I'm an old fart at this point. But I was like, I, I would listen to that. Even though the music's a little weird, I would totally listen to that. He was the radio producer's radio producer. The vast majority of our listeners, of the people listening to this, I'm going to have to assume they never heard of Joe Frank. And he was always available on podcast, but he was like this mystery yeah. to people who weren't willing to sort of follow the breadcrumbs to him. You know, I'll tell you, I mean, when I give this talk that I that I often give, mm-hmm. and I go through the series of people who've influenced me, and I always list Joe Frank, and I'll always ask any Joe Frank fans in the house, these will be like audiences of about 2,000, 2,500 people, and like one time someone clapped. 
one time. Wow. I remember like there was a clap in the far right, and I was like, oh, my God, a Joe Frank fan. It always broke my heart a little bit because no one ever knew his stuff. Like amongst us, our little sort of posse of radio people, he's a legend. But nobody on the outside ever knew him. This is going to be their chance. Yeah, this is the opportunity to do that. I think people want stuff that's just not, not usual right now. And he was basically the epitome of that. It certainly takes you out of the crazy dark world you're in and deposits you in a smarter, crazy dark <laughs> smarter, world. Smarter, crazy dark world, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jad. Yeah, thanks for, for grabbing me and doing this. Jad Abumrad, creator of Radio Lab and More Perfect. One day, I'll visit the Ringling Brothers' winter home for retired animals and watch lions and elephants wearing bathrobes and tattered slippers strolling on the beach. I'll walk along the shore, climb up on a cliff, and think about my life. Thanks for listening to this podcast extra. Happy New Year.